Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hi, everyone. This is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American frontier at 1001 Stories from the Old West. Here you'll find stories about lawkeepers and lawbreakers, Indian fighters, prospectors, newspaper men, and others written often by the men who lived during those times and others who wrote about it later. It was a wild time in what Congressman Davy Crockett called this britches bustin' country and an important time in American history. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. Welcome back to 1001 Stories from the Old West. Today, I'll be reading two chapters from Emerson Huff's Passing of the Frontier. We'll begin with Chapter 4, The Cowboys and then follow that with chapter 5, The Mines. Both of these are great reads on their own, but together they continue the story of the frontier. And now, the cowboys. The great west, vast and rude, brought forth men also vast and rude. We pass today over parts of that peerless region, and we see the red hills and ragged mountain fronts cut and crushed into huge indefinite shapes, to which even a small imagination may give a human or even a more than human form. It would almost seem that the same great hand which chiseled out these monumental forms had also laid its finger upon the people of this region and fashioned them rude and iron-like, in harmony with the stern faces set about them. Of all the babes of that primeval mother, the West, the cowboy was perhaps her dearest, because he was her last. Some of her children lived for centuries. This one, not for three decades before he began to be old. The life of this child of that wild region of America, the conditions of the experience that bore him, can never be fully known by those who have not seen the West with wide eyes. For the cowboy was simply a part of the West. He who does not understand the West can never understand the cowboy. We should study the cowboy in connection with his surroundings and in relation to his work. Then we shall see him not as a curiosity, but as a product, not as an eccentric driver of horned cattle, but as a man suited to his times. Large tracts of the domain once ruled by the cowboy have been turned into farms by the irrigator's ditch. The farmer in overalls is in many ways his own stockman today. On the ranges of Arizona, Wyoming, Texas, and parts of Nevada, we may still find the cowboy, even today. But he is no longer the Homeric figure that once dominated the plains. In his time, when wire fencing was unknown, the roundup was still necessary, and the cowboy's life was indeed spent out in the open. 
By the costume, we may often know the man. The cowboy's costume was harmonious with its surroundings. It was planned upon lines of such stern utility as to leave no possible thing which we may call dispensable. The heavy woolen shirt, loose and open about the neck, was the common wear at all seasons. If the cowboy wore a coat, he wore it open and loose as much as possible. If he wore a vest, he would wear it slouchily, hanging open or partly unbuttoned most of the time. There was a reason for this slouchy habit. The cowboy would say that the vest closely buttoned about the body would cause perspiration, so that the wearer would quickly chill upon ceasing exercise. If the wind were blowing keenly when the cowboy dismounted to sit upon the ground for dinner, he would button up his waistcoat and be warm. The cowboy's boots were of fine leather and fitted tightly with light, narrow soles, extremely small and high heels. Surely these tight, peaked boots were a calling card. There was no prouder soul on earth than the cowboy. He was proud of being a horseman and had a contempt for all human beings who walked. If we rode beside him and watched his seat in the big cow saddle, we found that his high and narrow heels prevented the slipping forward of the boot in the stirrup, into which he jammed his feet nearly full length. If there was a fall, the cowboy's foot never hung in the stirrup. When roping, his heels anchored him. Boots made for the cowboy trade sometimes had fancy tops of bright colored leather. The curious pride of the horseman extends also to his gloves. The cowboy was very careful in the selection of his gloves. They were made of the finest buckskin, which could not be injured by wetting. Generally, they were tanned white and cut with a deep cuff or gauntlet, from which hung a little fringe to flutter in the wind when he rode at full speed on horseback. The cowboy's hat was one of the typical and striking features of his costume. It was a heavy, wide, white felt hat with a heavy leather band buckled about it. There was no other head covering device so suitable as the Stetson for use on the plains. The board-like felt was practically indestructible. The brim flapped a little, and in time was turned up and perhaps held fast to the crown by a thong. The wearer might sometimes stiffen the brim by passing a thong through a series of holes pierced at the outer edge. He could depend upon his hat in all weather. In the rain, it was an umbrella. In the sun, a shield. In the winter, he could tie it down about his ears with his kerchief. Loosely thrown about the cowboy's shirt collar was a silk kerchief. It was tied in a hard knot in front. And though it could scarcely be said to be devoted to the uses of a neck scarf, yet it was a great comfort to the back of the neck when one was riding in a hot wind. It was sure to be of some bright color, usually red. A peculiar and distinctive feature of the cowboy's costume was his chaps. These chaps were two very wide, full-length trouser legs made of heavy calfskin and connected by a narrow belt or strap. They were cut away entirely at front and back so that they covered only the thigh and lower legs and did not heat the body as a complete leather garment would. They were intended solely as a protection against branches, thorns, briars, and the like, but they were prized in cold and wet weather. Sometimes on the southern range, a cowboy could be seen wearing chaps made of skins tanned with the hair still on, for the cowboy of the southwest learned early on 
that goat skin left with the hair on would turn the cactus thorns better than any other material. Later, the chaps became a sort of affectation on the part of the new man on the range, but the old-time cowboy wore them for use, not as a uniform. In the times when some men needed guns, and all men carried them, no pistol of less than forty-four caliber was tolerated on the range, the solid-framed forty-five caliber being the one almost universally used. The barrel was eight inches long, and it shot a rifle cartridge of forty grains of powder and a blunt-ended bullet that made a terrible missile. This weapon was holstered from a belt-worn loose, resting upon the left hip and hanging low down on the right hip so that none of the weight came upon the abdomen. This was typical, for the cowboy was neither fancy gunman nor army officer. An essential part of the cowpuncher's outfit was his rope. This he carried in a close coil at the side of the saddle horn, fastened by one of the many thongs scattered over his saddle. In the Spanish country, it was called a riata, and even today it's sometimes seen in the southwest made of rawhide. In the south, it was called a lariat. The modern rope is a well-made three-quarter inch hemp rope about 30 feet long with a leather or rawhide eye. The cowboy's quirt was a short, heavy whip, the stock being of wood or iron covered with braided leather and carrying a lash made of two or three heavy loose thongs. The spur in the old days had a very large rowel with blunt teeth an inch long. It was often ornamented with little bells or oblongs of metal, the tinkling which appealed to the childlike nature of this plains rider. Since the cowboy and his mount are inseparable, we may also speak of the horse's dress also. His bridle was noticeable for its tremendously heavy and cruel curb bit, known as the Spanish bit. But in the ordinary riding, and even in the exciting work of the old roundup, the cowboy used the bit very little. He rode with the pressure of the knee and the inclination of the body and the light shifting of both reins. The saddle was the most important part of the outfit. It was a curious thing, this saddle developed by the cattle trade, and the world has no other like it. Its great weight, from 30 to 40 pounds, was readily excusable when one remembers that it was not only a seat, but also a workbench for the cowman. A light saddle would have been torn to pieces at the first rush of a maddened steer, but the sturdy frame of a cow saddle would throw the heaviest bull on the range. The high pommel, or horn, steel forged and covered with cross braids of leather, served as anchor post for the steer, a turn of the rope about it accomplishing that purpose at once. The saddle tree forked low down over the pony's back so that the saddle sat firmly and could not readily be pulled off. The great broad cinches bound the saddle fast till the horse and saddle were practically one fabric. The strong wooden house of the old heavy stirrup protected the foot from being crushed by the impact of the herd. The form of the cow saddle has changed little. The roundup was the harvest of the range. The time of the calf roundup was in the spring after the grass had become good and after the calves had grown large enough for the branding. The State Cattle Association divided the entire state range into a number of roundup districts. Under an elected roundup captain were all the bosses in charge of the different ranch outfits sent by men having cattle in the roundup. Let's draw a picture of this scene as it was. 
Each cowboy would have eight to ten horses for his own use, for he had now before him the hardest riding of the year. When the cowpuncher went into the herd to cut out calves, he mounted a fresh horse, and every few hours again he changed horses, for there was no horse which could long endure the fatigue of the rapid and intense work of cutting. Before the rider stretched a sea of interwoven horns, waving and whirling as the densely packed ranks of cattle closed in or swayed apart, it was no prospect for the weakling, but into it went the cowpuncher on his determined little horse, heeding not the plunging, crushing, and thrusting of the excited cattle. Down under the bulks of the herd, half hid in the whirl of dust, he would spy a little curly calf running, dodging, and twisting, always at the heel of its mother, and he would dart in after it, following the two through the thick of surging and plunging beasts. The sharp-eyed pony would see almost as soon as his rider which cow was wanted, and he needed small guidance from that time on. He would follow hard at her heels, edging her constantly toward the flank of the herd, at times nipping her hide as a reminder of his own superiority. In spite of herself, the cow would gradually turn out toward the edge, and at last would be swept clear of the crush, the calf following close behind her. There was a whirl of the rope, and the calf was laid by the heels and dragged to the fire where the branding irons were heated and ready. Meanwhile, other cowpunchers are rushing calves to the branding. The hubbub and turmoil increase, taut ropes cross the ground in many directions. The cutting ponies pant and sweat, rear and plunge. The garb of the cowboy is now that of white alkali which hangs gray in his eyebrows and from his mustache. Steers bellow as they surge to and fro. Cows charge on their persecutors. Fleet yearlings break and run for the open, pursued by men who care not how or where they ride. Today, this is all past. There is no calf roundup of the open range today. The last of the roundups was held in Route County, Colorado, several years ago, so far as the rider knows, and it had only to do with the shifting of the cattle from the summer to the winter range. After the calf roundup came the beef roundup, the cowman's final harvest. This began in July or August. Only the mature or fattened animals were cut out from the herd. This beef cut was held apart and driven on ahead from place to place as the roundup progressed. It was then driven in by easy stages to the shipping point on the railroad, whence the long train loads of cattle went to the great markets. In the heyday of the cowboy, it was natural that his chief amusement should be those of the outdoor air and those more or less in line with his employment. He was accustomed to the sight of big game, and so had the edge of his appetite for its pursuit worn off. Yet he was a hunter, just as every western man was a hunter at that time. His weapons were the rifle, revolver, and rope. The latter two were always with him. With the rope at times he captured the coyote, and under special conditions he has even taken deer and antelope in this way, though this was of course most unusual. Elk have been roped by cowboys many times, and even the mountain sheep, almost incredible as that may seem. The young buffalo were easy prey for the cowboy, and these he often roped and took captive. In fact, all the herds of buffalo now in captivity in this country were begun by the calves roped and secured by cowboys, and these few scattered individuals of that grand race of animals remain as melancholy reminders of a national shiftlessness that led to their wholesale slaughter. The grizzly was at times seen by cowboys on the range, 
and if it chanced that several cowboys were together, it was not unusual to give him chase. They did not always rope him, for it was rarely that the nature of the country made this possible. Sometimes they did rope him and wished they could let him go, for a grizzly bear is uncommonly active and straightforward in his habits at close quarters. The extreme difficulty of such a combat, however, made it a chief fascination for the cowboy. Of course, no one horse could hold the bear after it was roped, but as one after another came up, the bear was caught by the neck and foot and body until at last he was tangled and tripped and hauled about till he was helpless. No other feat could better show the courage of the plainsman and of the horse which he so perfectly controlled. If such wild and dangerous exploits were the cowboy's amusements on the range, it may be imagined what his amusements were when he visited the settlements. The cowpunchers reared in the free life of the open air, under the utmost freedom of individual action, came off the drive or roundup after weeks or even months of unusual restraint and hardship. He felt that the time had arrived for him to celebrate. Merely great rude children, wild, untamed, and as untaught as the herds they led, they regarded their first look at the settlements of the railroad as a glimpse of a wider world. They pursued to the utmost such avenues of new experience as lay before them, almost without exception, avenues of vice. It is strange that the records of those days should be chosen by the public to be held as the measure of the American cowboy. Those days were brief, and they are long since gone. The American cowboy has atoned for them by a quarter of a century of faithful labor. The amusements of the cowboy were like the features of his daily surroundings and occupation. They were intense, large, Homeric. Yet, judged at his work, no higher type of employee ever existed, nor one more dependable. He was the soul of honor in all the ways of his calling. The very blue of the sky, bending evenly over all men alike, seemed to symbolize his instinct for justice. Faithfulness and manliness were his chief traits. His standard? To be a square man. Not all the open range will ever be farmed but very much that was long thought to be irreclaimable has gone under irrigation or is being more or less successfully dry-farmed. The man who brought water upon the arid lands of the West changed the entire complexion of a vast country and with it the industries of that country. Acres redeemed from the desert and added to the realm of the American farmer were taken from the realm of the American cowboy. The West has changed. The curtain has dropped between us and its wild and stirring scenes. The old days are gone. The house dog sits on the hill where yesterday the coyotes sang. There are fenced fields, and in them stand sleek round beasts deep in crops such as their ancestors never saw. In a little town nearby is the hurry and bustle of modern life. This town is far out upon what was called the frontier long after the frontier has really gone. Out from the tiny settlement in the dusk of the evening, always facing toward where the sun is sinking, might be seen a figure we should know. He would ride as lightly and as easily as ever, sitting erect and jaunty in the saddle, his reins held high and loose in the hand whose fingers turn up gracefully and whose body free yet firm in the saddle with the seat of the perfect horseman. 
Then, toward the edge of town, out into the evening, he would ride on. The dust of his riding would mingle with the dust of night. We could not see which was one or which was the other. We could only hear the hoofbeats passing, boldly and steadily still, but growing fainter, fainter, and more faint. And that concludes Chapter 4 of The Passing of the Frontier by Emerson Huff. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to Emerson Huff's Passing of the Frontiers, Chapter 5, The Mines. If the influence of the cattle industry was paramount in the development of the frontier region as it was found by the first railways, it should not be concluded that this upthrust of the southern cattle constituted the only contribution to the west of that day. There were indeed earlier influences, the chief of which was the advent of the wild population of the placer mines. The riches of the gold fields hastened the building of the first transcontinental railroads, and the men of the mines set their marks so indelibly upon the range. The great discoveries of gold in 1849 in California or in 1859 in the Pikes Peak country in Colorado are stories worthy of attention, but our story will take the rich placer fields of Idaho and Montana, from which enormous amounts of wealth were taken, as they offer typical examples of the mining communities of the Rockies. Much of history remains forever unwritten. Of the beginning of the Idaho camp, there is only brief, inconsequential, impartial stories. The miners who surged this way and that all through the Sierras and Upper Cascades and thence back again into the Rockies were a turbulent mob. Having overrun all our mountain ranges, following the earlier trails of the traders and trappers, they now recoiled back upon themselves and rolled back eastward to meet the advancing civilization of the westbound rails. Caring nothing for history and less for the civilized society in which they formerly had lived, this story of bedlam broken loose, of men gone crazed by the sudden subversion of all known values and all standards of life, was at first something which had no historian and can be recorded only by way of hearsay stories which do not always tell the truth. The mad treasure hunters of the California mines, restless, insubordinate, incapable of restraint, possessed of the belief that there might be gold somewhere other than in California, and having heard reports of strikes to the north, went hurrying out into the mountains of Oregon and Washington in a wild stampede, all eager again to engage in the glorious gamble, whereby one lucky stroke of the pick, a man might be set free from the old limitations of human existence. So the flood of gold seekers made new centers of lurid activity, such as Orofino, Florence, and Carson. Then it was that Walla Walla and Lewiston, outfitting posts on the western side of the range, found place upon the maps of the land. Before these adventurers, now eastbound and no longer facing west, there arose the vast and formidable mountain ranges, which in their time had daunted even the calm minds of Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. But the prospectors and the pack trains alike penetrated the Salmon River Range. Orofino in Idaho was old in 1861. The next great strikes were to be made around Florence. Here, the indomitable packer from the west, conquering unheard of difficulties, brought in whiskey, women, pianos, food, and yes, even mining tools. 
Naturally, all of these commanded fabulous prices. These events became known in the Mississippi Valley and further eastward, and now there came hurrying out of the older regions many more hundreds and thousands eager to reach a land not so far as California, but reputed to be quite as rich. It was then as the bull trains came in from the east, from the head of navigation on the Missouri River, that the western outfitting posts of Walla Walla and Lewiston lost their importance. Southward of the Idaho camps, the same sort of story was repeating itself. Nevada had drawn to herself a portion of the wild men of the stampede. Carson, for its day, 1859-1860, was a capital not unlike the others. Some of its men had come down from the upper fields. Some had arrived from the east over the old Santa Fe Trail, and yet others had drifted in from California. All the camps were very much alike, a straggling row of log cabins or huts of motley construction, a few stores, sometimes of logs, or if a sawmill was at hand, of rude sawn boards, a number of saloons, each of which customarily also supported a dance hall, a series of cabins or huts where dwelt individual men, each doing his own cooking and washing, and outside these huts, the uptorn earth, such were the camps that dotted the trails of the stampedes across inhospitable deserts and mountain ranges. Church and school were unknown. Law there was none. For of organized society there was none. The women who lived there were unworthy of the name of woman. The men strode about in the loose dress of the camp, shod with heavy boots, always armed. The invention of Colt's revolving pistol is a contributing cause to the bloody history of the mining camp. At the time of the Civil War, this weapon had attained very general use throughout the frontier. That was before the day of modern ammunition. The six-shooter of the Placer days was of the old cap-and-ball style, heavy, long-barreled, and usually wooden-handled. It was the general ownership of these deadly weapons which caused so much bloodshed in the camps. The revolver in the hands of a tenderfoot is not especially serviceable but it attained great deadliness in the hands of an expert user. Such a man, naturally of quick nerve reflexes, skillful and accurate in the use of the weapon through long practice, became a dangerous antagonist. It is a curious fact that the great Montana fields were discovered in part by men coming east from California, and in part by men passing west. The first discovery of gold in Montana was made on Gold Creek by a half-breed trapper named Francois. This was in 1852, but the news seems to have lain dormant for a time. Naturally enough, for there was small ingress or egress from that wild and unknown country. In the autumn of 1860, a prospector by the name of Tom Golddigger, appropriately enough, turned up at Bridger with stories of creeks in the area. He had been all over Alder Gulch, which was soon to prove fabulously rich. It was not, however, until 1863 that the Montana camps sprang into fame. It was not Gold Creek or Alder Gulch, but Florence and other Idaho camps that, in the summer and autumn of 1862, brought into the mountains no less than five parties of gold seekers. The first of these parties arrived at Gold Creek by wagon train from Fort Benton, and the second hailed from Salt Lake. An election was held for the purpose of forming a sort of community organization the first election ever known in Montana. The men from the East had brought with them some idea of law and organization. These men were prominent in the organization of the first miners' court, which had occasion to try and promptly hang Stillman and Jernigan, 
two ruffians who had been in from the Salmon River mines only about four days when they thus met retribution for their early crimes. An associate of theirs, Arnett, had been killed while resisting arrest. The reputation of Florence for lawlessness and bloodshed was well known, and as the outrages of the well-organized band of desperados operating in Idaho might be expected to begin at any time in Montana, a certain uneasiness existed among the newcomers from the states. Two more parties, likewise bound for Idaho and likewise baffled by the Salmon River Range, arrived at the Montana camps in that same summer. Both of these were from the Pikes Peak country in Colorado. And in the autumn came a fifth, this one under military protection, Captain James L. Fisk commanding, and having in the party a number of settlers bound for Oregon, as well as miners bound for Idaho. This expedition arrived in the Prickly Prairie Valley of Montana in September 1862, having left St. Paul on the 16th of June, traveling by steamboat and wagon train. While Captain Fisk and his expedition pushed on to Walla Walla, nearly half the immigrants stayed to try their luck at placer mining. But the yield was not great, and the distant Salmon River mines, their original destination, still awaited them. Winter was approaching. It was now too late in the season to reach the Salmon River mines, 500 miles across the mountains, and it was 400 miles to Salt Lake, the nearest supply post. Therefore, most of the men joined this little army of prospectors in Montana. Some of them drifted to the grasshopper diggings, soon to be known under the name of Bannock, one of the wildest mining camps of its day. These different origins of the population of the first Montana camps are interesting because of the fact that they indicate a difference in the two currents of population which now met here in the new placer fields. In general, the wildest and most desperate of the old-time adventurers, those coming from the west, had located in the Idaho camps and might be expected in Montana at any time. In contrast to these, the men lately out from the states were of a different type, many of them sober, most of them law-abiding, men who had come out to better their fortunes and not merely to drop into the wild and licentious life of a placer camp. Law and order always did prevail, eventually, in any mining community. In the case of Montana, law and order arrived almost simultaneously with lawlessness and desperadoism. By June 1863, the extraordinarily rich strike in Alder Gulch had been made. The news of this spread like wildfire to Bannock and to the Salmon River mines in Idaho. And the result was one of the fiercest of all the stampedes and the rise almost overnight of Virginia City. And the rich last chance gulch on which the city of Helena now stands attracted a tremendous population almost at once. An historian who lived there told of the life. One long stream of active life filled the little creek on its course from Bald Mountain through a canyon of wild and picturesque character until it emerged into the large and fertile valley. Lateral streams of great beauty poured down the sides of the mountain chain bounding the valley. Gold placers were found upon these streams and occupied soon after the settlement of Virginia City was commenced. This human hive, numbering at least 10,000 people, was the product of 90 days. Into it were crowded all the elements of a rough and active civilization. Thousands of cabins and tents and brush wickiups were seen on every hand. Every foot of the gulch was undergoing displacement, and it was already disfigured by huge heaps of gravel which had been passed through the sluices and rifled of the glittering content. Gold was abundant, 
and every possible device was employed by the gamblers, the traders, the vile men and women who had come in with the miners into the locality to obtain it. Nearly every third cabin was a saloon where vile whiskey was peddled out for 50 cents a drink in gold dust. Many of these places were filled with gambling tables and gamblers. Hurdy-gurdy dance houses were numerous. Not a day or night passed which did not yield its full fruition of vice, quarrels, wounds, or murders. The crack of the revolver was often heard above the merry notes of the violin. Street fights were frequent, and as no one knew when or where they would occur, everyone was on his guard against a random shot. Sunday was always a gala day. The stores were all open, thousands of people crowded the thoroughfares ready to rush into the direction of any promised excitement. Horse racing was among the most favored amusements. Prize rings were formed, and brawny men engaged in fisticuffs until their sight was lost and their bodies pummeled to a jelly, while hundreds of onlookers cheered the victor. Pistols flashed, bowie knives flourished, and braggart oaths filled the air, as often as men's passions triumphed over their reason. This was indeed the reign of unbridled license, and men who at first regarded it with disgust and terror by constant exposure soon learned to become a part of it and forget that they had ever been aught else. All classes of society were represented at this general exhibition. Judges, lawyers, doctors, even clergymen could not claim exemption. Culture and religion afforded feeble protection where allurement and indulgence ruled the hour. Imagine, therefore, a fabulously rich mountain valley, 12 miles in extent, occupied by more than 10,000 men and producing more than $10 million before the close of the first year. It is a stupendous demand on any imagination. How might all this gold be sent out in safekeeping? We are told that the only stage route extended from Virginia City no farther than Bannock. Between Virginia City and Salt Lake City, there was an absolute wilderness, wholly unsettled, 475 miles in width. There was no post office in the territory. Letters were brought from Salt Lake, first at a cost of $2 and a half each, and later in the season at $1 each. All money, at infinite risk, was sent to the nearest express post office at Salt Lake City by private hands. Practically every man in the new gold fields was aware of the existence of a secret band of well-organized ruffians and robbers. The general feeling was one of extreme uneasiness. There were plenty of men who had taken out of the ground considerable quantities of gold and who would have been glad to get back to the east with their little fortunes, but they dared not start. Time after time, the express coach, the solitary rider, the unguarded wagon train were held up and robbed, usually accompanied by murder. When the miners did start out from one camp to another, they took all manner of precautions to conceal their gold dust. We are told that on one occasion, one party bored a hole in the end of the wagon tongue with an auger and filled it full of gold dust, thus escaping observation. The robbers learned to know the express agents and always had advice of every large shipment of gold. It was almost useless to undertake to conceal anything from them, and resistance was met with death. Such a reign of terror, such an organized system of highway robbery, such a light valuing of human life has been seldom found in any other time or place. There were good men in these camps, although the best of them probably let down the standards of living somewhat after their arrival there. But the trouble was that the good men did not know one another, had no organization, and scarcely dared at first to attempt one. 
On the other hand, the robbers' organization was complete and kept its secrets as the grave. Indeed, many a lonesome grave held secrets none was ever to know. Many men went out from the eastern states and disappeared, their fate always to remain a mystery. This is part of the untold story of the mining frontier. We are not concerned with repeating thrilling tales, bloody almost beyond belief, and indicative of an incomprehensible depravity in human nature, so much as we are with the causes and effects of this wild civilization which raged here, quite alone in the midst of one of the wildest of the western mountain regions. It will best serve our purpose to retain in mind the twofold character of this population, and to remember that the frontier caught to itself not only ruffians and desperados, men undaunted by any risk, but also men possessed of yet a steadier personal courage and hardihood. There were men rough, coarse, brutal, murderous, but against them were other men, self-reliant, stern, just, and resolved upon fair play. That was indeed the touchstone of the entire civilization which followed up on the heels of these scenes of violence. It was Fair play which really animated the great Montana vigilante movement and which eventually cleaned up the merciless gangs. The centers of civilization were far removed. The courts were powerless. In some cases, even the machinery of the law was in the hands of these ruffians. But so violent were their deeds, so brutal, so murderous, so unfair, that slowly the indignation of the good men arose to the white-hot point of open resentment and of swift retribution. What the good men of the frontier loved most of all was justice. They now enforced justice in the only way left open to them. They did this as California earlier had done, and they did it so well that there was small need to repeat the lesson. The actual extermination of these gangs occurred rather promptly once the vigilantes got underway. Hangings would lead to confessions, which would lead to more hangings. Much has been written and much romanced about the conduct of these desperados when they met their fate. Some of them are brave, some proved cowards at the last. Some of the ruffians faced death boldly. Boone Helm was as hardened as any of them. This man was a cannibal and a murderer. He seems to have had no better nature whatever. His last words as he sprang off were, Hurrah for Jeff Davis! Let her rip! Another man remarked calmly that he cared no more for hanging than for drinking a glass of water, but each after his own fashion met the end foreordained by him by his own lack of compassion. There was an instant improvement in the social life of Virginia City, Bannock, and the adjoining camps as soon as it was understood that the vigilantes were afoot. Naturally, it was not the case that all the bad men were thus exterminated. From time to time there appeared vividly in the midst of these surroundings additional figures of solitary desperados, each to have his own list of victims, and each himself to fall before the weapons of his enemies, or to meet the justice of the law, or the sterner meed of the vigilantes. What has been true regarding the camps of Florence, Bannock, and Virginia City had been true in part in earlier camps, and was to be repeated, perhaps a trifle less vividly, in other camps yet to come. All over the West, once so unspeakably wild and reckless, there now rise great cities where recently were scattered only mining camps, scarce fit to be called units of any social compact. It was but yesterday that these men fought and drank and dug their own graves in their own sluices. At the city of Helena, on the side of Last Chance Gulch, 
one recalls that not so long ago citizens could show with a certain contemporary pride the old dead tree once known as hangman's tree it marked a spot which might be called a focus of the frontier around it and in the country immediately adjoining was fought out the great battle whose issue could not be doubted that battle between the new and the old days between law and order between individual lawlessness between the school and the saloon between the home and the dance hall between society united and resolved and the individual reverted to worse than savagery this concludes chapter five the minds of emerson huff's passing of the frontier this has been a tremendous story and we look forward to many more see you next time thanks for joining us at 1001 stories from the old west if you enjoyed this episode please do send us a review this is your host kevin sykes speaking on behalf of the 1001 stories network take care and we'll be back soon with a brand new story